0: The people that brought you broke back Mountain <laughs> comes, breaking my back, Leonidas. <laughs> All the way from the Peloponnesian. Yeah, from yeah, Lacedonium or whatever it was.
1: Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am Jacob Shop, your host. And with me, as always, I have Evan Roosh. How's it going, everyone? Five feet apart in a basement because we're not gay. Not gay. gay. <laughs> And speaking of which, we're talking about the Spartans again today. Again. <laughs> except we I think we got most of the butt stuff out of the way in the last episode. So if you missed yeah. the, if you somehow missed the butt stuff, go back and listen to the first part about the Spartans, because there's a lot of butt stuff. A whole lot of it, yeah. Yeah.
0: And we're gonna be focusing more on the Battle of Thermopylae, as well as just Leonidas and Xerxes, who are the respective rulers. Of Sparta and Persia, so we have another really interesting, really interesting episode for you guys today about one of the most probably probably the most talked about, studied battle in history.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most famous. outside of
0: like maybe like World War II stuff, but just like ancient battle of history. Yeah,
1: it's definitely one of the most famous. I don't know if it's one of the most important battles necessarily, but it is one of the most like well known.
0: I would say well known for sure because I mean. The Spartans, like Greece, did lose this battle, and then Persians went on and burnt Athens to the ground. Yeah, so it's like
1: it is interesting that one of the most well-known battles in history is known from the side of the losers, yeah, and not a, the side of out. the winners. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's it's very weird in yeah. that sense. It's but, just
0: a cool, like last stand, like, it's kind of like why people remember the Alamo, Yeah. in case you guys forgot. is C- your daily remember. Why
1: Custer is so like well-known in the Civil War, just because he sucked. Ooh, <laughs> like, people
0: love a good last stand. Yeah,
1: last stands are a big thing in history, I guess. We
0: so. might need to do an episode of the best last stands.
1: Or one-night stands. One-night stands in <laughs> <of> history.
0: <laughs> it was uh, Leonidas, who was one king with the other king. Yep. Wow.
1: So, yeah, today we're going to get more into the Battle of Thermopylae proper. Evan's got some information on Xerxes and on, uh, other Persian figureheads around this time. So we're going to get into some of that, and then I will get into more of the aftermath of the Battle of Thermopylae, kind of how the Spartans reevaluated their own society and restructured and kind of became the f- legendary figures that they are now. And then we'll get into afterwards some of the Peloponnesian Wars and all that good stuff. So there's there's still a lot that happens in the Spartan storyline. Oh yeah, they had a solid couple hundred year run where they're in. Let's say they're
0: in the news. A yeah, lot.
1: I I guess you could almost separate Spartan history into pre-Thermopylae and post-Thermopylae because yeah. it is a very much different society. I mean, obviously. As we talked about in the last episode, there was still focus on military, mm-hmm. but there wasn't really anything written that we know of, at least like mm-hmm. contemporary to the time period, that said that Sparta was like this great military power. It kinda just seemed like they were another Greek state on par with the other great Greek states at the time, like Athens and Corinth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Didn't really seem like they stood out as a very military society. Just they just had a normal military they just the thing that was different for the spartans versus like athens and the other societies is that they had that slave labor so they could focus on just other pursuits like military training and stuff so it very much freed up the leisure class compared to having a society where the leisure class still had to do some sort of work so spartans really capitalized on subjecting other people to horrors
0: yeah they love themselves a good helot.
1: yeah that is true. So
0: much that they snuck up and stabbed them all the time. A lot. A lot of stabbings. Stab the hell it
1: and then go home and stab my boyfriend. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> with that, <laughs> we ended Good our transition. last we landed ended our last episode by by mentioning that Sparta had overthrown Athens, but now everyone in Greece was kind of seeing the necessity to band together because they needed to fight a new enemy that was coming from the east which was persia and there is a couple of different instances of persia coming before we have the battle of thermopylae but that is where it all culminated really and there was warnings that preceded different things from the greeks the greeks sent stuff to king cyrus of persia and he didn't listen and then darius the first invaded and was pushed back and then we get to 480 BC, where we get the Battle of Thermopylae. So Evan's got a lot more information on this stuff, so I'll pass that over to him, and he can get us started on the lead up to the battle, and then get into the battle itself.
0: Yes, absolutely. So again, just extremely excited to to dive into this topic. Um, like we mentioned, it's truly the most for real. It has to be the most most noted battle in the history of the world. But the Battle of Thermopylae, you do like Jacob mentioned. You do have to go back a little bit in time to understand why it happened and why it had such importance at this time in history.
1: And we will preface this by saying that a lot of the stuff that we know about Thermopylae comes from spart like pro Spartan sources. So I mean Propaganda baby. Yeah, there's a lot of things in here that are very obviously exaggerated to make the Spartans look better, Mm -hmm. but there is stuff that is not pro-Spartan about this, so I mean, we have varying accounts, but I mean, a lot of it is going to be from that aspect.
0: Right, right, right. So the actual, let's say, political origins of the Battle of Thermopylae actually happens quite some time before the battle takes place. Uh, Actually, during the time in the reign of Darius I, or Darius the Great, um, he sent messengers to different greek cities in 491 BC in the hopes of persuading greece and all the different city-states to accept persian authority because the persian empire at this time was huge massive. it was insane how big this bad boy was it spanned pretty much from what is known as india today like the border of india and this is at its at its peak the border of india all of the middle east including like Af- like modern day iran iraq afghanistan uh the borders of saudi arabia and egypt uh, as well as turkey and then <clears throat> excuse me and then uh what's today i believe macedonia so they they truly had a huge empire they were the empire they led pretty much the entire world and uh well, of course military force but they also had a huge uh huge city like babylon was a huge city of like cultural development they like they were the empire of the time and they were rich
1: as fuck oh they had gold they like babylon was a city of gold they were was... the this might be one of the most rich empires ever to exist in yes. history it is insane how much money they have and they used that money to throw around in greece quite a bit
0: yeah they had a ton of money the athenians excuse me once these messengers actually reached the greek cities uh this definitely offended the greeks because they are just very proud society of course we talked about spartans but also the athenians actually were the ones to toss persian messengers into a pit Which, you know, if you've seen the movie 300, like there's that classic scene where Leonidas is just punting people into the the But that was actually the Athenians, funny enough. Uh, The Spartans, not to be outdone, um, they tossed the Persian messengers into a well. So a little bit (laughs) different.
1: (laughs) Well, and it's interesting, too, because at this point, it's mostly been infighting in Greece. Like a Mm -hmm. lot of Athens versus Sparta, Sparta versus Thebes there's a lot of different groups that are fighting like on that coastline of the peninsula. Mm-hmm. So it's not really like they've had outside enemies that big of an, like that big of that are that big of a problem until the Persians show up. And it's funny because the Persians just show up and ask them to be like subjects of the Persian empire. They don't yeah. come in fighting. They're like, "Hey, what do you guys think yeah. about you being under us?"
0: It's like, "Hear me out. You pay us to exist."
1: Sounds good, right?
0: <laughs> and then they were like, "Well, uh, yeah, totally. Let me just uh, take you to our wishing well. Yeah. Really let me quick. take
1: you to our famous hole. Yeah, our famous deep pit. Oh, well, famous hole in Sparta might be That'd a little different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually how they elected kings.
0: <laughs> uh, Darius then it, then did. We're not going to spend too much time on Darius, but he did eventually invade or try to invade Greece, which led to the Battle of Marathon, where he was turned away um, by a combined Greek force. Like Jacob mentioned, there was typically a lot of infighting with the Greeks, but whenever they had an outside empire, opponent, foe come in, they banded together really quick and they actually drove off the Persian forces at Marathon. And then we have that classic well, that's, of course, if you didn't know this, Fun but that's where the mile marathon race actually comes from a messenger a greek messenger ran the 26.2 miles from the battle location at marathon to athens ran through the door screamed nike which is the greek word for victory and then died (laughs) immediately died from exhaustion
1: but he did his job. He did good. He was the Paul Revere of Greece. He was. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't have a horse. Yeah. Oh man, a horse would have been clutch for yeah. him at this point. And then Darius went back home and became a country singer. Nice. <laughs> did uh the Greeks even have horses? Uh yes, they did. Huh. There there was cavalry in Greece. It wasn't a prominent part. Right. It was mostly infantry, but they did have some cavalry.
0: That was just kind of I just saw that, like, they're such an elite, like, the Spartans, for example, such an elite military force, they focus on the phalanx, like, wow, they did not use horses at all.
1: Yeah, they, some of them did, like, for, uh, it was, yeah, it wasn't, like, super commonplace, but I did read that there was instances of cavalry in Greece at this time. I don't know if the Spartans really utilized it as much as others did, like, the Athenians, I believe, used it more than them, and the Athenians also used a lot more naval warfare, and the right. Spartans did. The Spartans were very much a ground warfare kind of group.
0: but mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just kind of a little bit of the background of, you know, Darius. So you're already seeing that tensions between Greece and the Persian Empire are already, you know, at a, you know they're not great. Yeah, they want be- to get at each other. Because
1: Persia, to this point, has expanded to the Mediterranean coastline in the, in the east. Mm-hmm. So they typically, I mean, the next move is to go west it's just the most logical step so you might as well just go right to greece and ask hey you're next so we can do this one way or the other Mm -hmm.
0: so now we're going to dive a little bit into xerxes who was the main leader for the persian empire during the battle of thermopylae
1: very deep voice
0: very (laughs) his, his portrayal in 300 is just killed them all. That movie is hilarious. It is.
1: A gr- I love that movie. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But man, is it not accurate?
0: <laughs> they made the Persians weird as fuck. Yeah. But the Immortals are cool. <laughs> the Immortals are very cool.
1: Yeah, they made definitely made the Immortals way cooler than they probably were.
0: Yeah, they did not have the ghoulish metal masks. They weren't, they were just... they weren't like proto-ninjas. <laughs> no, yeah. They were. <laughs> That's so true. But Xerxes was the son of Darius the Great, who we just talked about a little bit, and Was the firstborn son to Darius, and once Darius eventually passed away, Xerxes took over the throne. When his father died in 486 BC, Xerxes was around 35 years old, and it actually, this is just a fun fact, he was already the governor of Babylonia and he had been doing so for about 12 years. So he was very confident and he was very set, and he was responsible for. At the time, the biggest city in the world,
1: the cultural center pretty much of the world. Which is, that's kind of crazy because you usually around this time you have kings inheriting a throne that are like, first of all, really young. Yeah. And second of all, just have really no experience running anything at that point. Like they just watch their dad. So to have already been experienced in some sort of political center Mm -hmm. is a very good thing for him. And then he just decided to go to war with everyone. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, as soon as he took took power, the first thing that he wanted to do was to quote unquote free end quote Egypt. <laughs> Meaning yeah. Let's take that let's take that over.
1: All of that river they got and area yeah. to the farm. Oh, and a lot of money.
0: He saw yeah, he saw the Nile and just got
1: all hot and bothered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh at the time, so Purja did already it held Egypt, but there was a rebellion and a usurper was actually in control of the area for about two years. And when Xerxes got to the throne, he obviously invaded, like we mentioned, and he ravaged the delta, which is a huge part of the, of the Nile River system, and came down very hard on the usurper and just the Egyptian people as a whole. He learned, because there was actually a revolt in Babylon where he was the governor, uh, where two uh, nationalist groups uh, appeared that when there's a rebellion, you have to put it down and put it down heard. And that's what he did with Egypt. He definitely killed a lot of Egyptian citizens that had nothing to do with it.
1: It is kind of mind-blowing to me how large this empire is, the fact that they were able to maintain it. Especially at this time, because there's such a great distance between the coast of India and Egypt. So the fact that they were able to not only subjugate and spread their their forces that far away, Mm -hmm. and also just to instill a sense of loyalty in areas that far away. I mean, obviously, there's revolts, as we just mentioned. But the fact that they were, for the most part, able to have a cohesive and non-aggressive Empire is kind of insane.
0: Right, I mean, the the Persians, I think they were one of the first empires to... They would conquer people, but then kind of just leave them alone yeah. after that. You did have to pay a lot of money, but they did really just leave conquered peoples alone, meaning they could keep their own religion. And in the case of him conquering Egypt, he actually kind of broke this usual tradition because he basically... Again, like I mentioned, killed a lot of people, tore down fortresses, pillaged temples, and actually destroyed a statue of one of the prominent Egyptian gods, which had a huge significance because that basically meant that he was no longer to marry uh, some key people in Egypt to kind of form the alliance. And so he basically said, "Which in Babylon, you the entire." empire was built with the idea that Egyptians and Persians were the same through what was used to be known as the achaemenid Empire so instead of coming in and saying we're a foreign army we're actually just part of this once old empire anyway Xerxes said fuck that empire now, <laughs> he said I am now the king of the Persians and of the Medes yeah. so you have to keep in mind like at this time a lot of there was a huge priority of succession, you know, that rightful king thing. And once he destroyed that temple and that statue, he kind of lost that a little bit until he said, screw that. I'm starting my own thing.
1: Yeah, uh, there's just there's a lot of names that we're going to be thrown around. Like we already have thrown around quite a few names, but mm-hmm. for the most part, just know that we're talking about the Greeks versus the Persians here. It's all of like the smaller names like the Thebans the Corinthians, the Athenians, Spartans, those are all Greeks. And then yes. everyone else, the only other major player really is going to be the Persians. So just to keep it a little simplified in your head, just know it's Greek versus Persia.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good note because we're just used to guessing. We've done the research, yeah. So like, I've, I've been
1: reading about all this, so I know that. But, like, you at home probably right. don't understand that, like, the Thebans, the Corinthians, those are all Greek people, right? Not outside forces, so. right?
0: Right, right. Um, but now, with this new tranquility and quote unquote, again, peace of the empire, uh, the Persian Empire reestablished, Xerxes then recommitted and devoted himself to picking up where his father, Darius the I, left off and decided to wage war against Greece. Because, uh, and part of this was because his cousin and brother-in-law, Mardonius, uh, who's actually supported by a strong party of exiled Greeks, kind of fed him a little, like, hey, hey, man, you should really, like, look into taking over Greece. <laughs> to put it in layman's terms. Yeah. They just kept on saying, like, I oh, don't know, your dad kind of, it was the one thing that your dad couldn't do, you know one that has the nickname the great (laughs) you should you should probably be looking to uh, you know to do that and the impressionable xerxes finally fell into this pressure into this pressure and threw himself into these diplomatic and military preparations meaning that he was going to get the entire persian army which at this time covers so much land there's so many people this is a huge huge army that actually took Three entire years to gather.
1: It's, it's insane how many people the Persian army actually held mm-hmm. at its peak. Like, it's over like hundreds of thousands of soldiers. It's insane. It's
0: it's true. I mean, Herodotus even mentions that there has never been such a gathering of an army. Yeah. Uh, and again, maybe that's just more, I mean, more that's, propaganda, but... This truly is a huge army that's and, coming to Greece.
1: And you've got to think about it at the time period. Like, this is a hun- like hundreds of thousands of people, which is still big by today's standards. But obviously, there's countries that have bigger standing militaries than this now. But you're talking about going against the Greek states where the Spartans maybe have like 20,000 in right. an army, mm-hmm. the Athenians have maybe like 50 to 60,000. So these aren't like very big forces comparatively to the Persians. Right,
0: right, right. And again, just going back a little bit as to maybe what was the real reason behind invading Greece, because for a majority of Greece, like we mentioned in the last episode, like Sparta had great land. They had availability to grow crops, but the rest of Greece, there's really not much economic value uh, when you think about it in at these times, like there's not a ton of farming land, there's great fishing, great fishing, yeah. In, in Greece, there's not a ton of like gold, there's not a ton of other natural
1: resources. I believe like 70% of Greece at this time was unfarmable, so yeah, you, it's a very non appropriated land to use,
0: right? And historian uh, G. Glatz actually kind of puts it this way that, and I quote here, it was the sovereign, or excuse me. Xerxes, by divine right, saw opposition as annoying and considered it sacrilege. He was, as a person, very nervous in temperament, uh, fallen from youthful fire into indolence, and was incited to make a war he didn't like. So, he kind of, because Xerxes, before actually going in and with the army to conquer Greece, did the same thing that is... Uh, That his father did. He sent messengers and heralds to be like, hey, Greece, we tried this before. You guys want to join in? Want to be part of the game? One more time. And they were like, again, here's our well and our bottomless pit. Yep. (laughs) And here you go. Yep. They did not listen. Yep. So Xerxes, at the head of his armies, his huge armies, uh, left Sardis for the Hellespont and had two boat bridges placed across the straits, which I will never forget. As a young lad, I was watching uh, Modern Marvels, and they actually did an episode covering the boat bridges that were constructed to cross what's there. So there's a gap where I believe now Constantinople is. That's on the edge of Turkey and modern-day Macedonia. And he constructed, Xerxes constructed just this incredible bridge made from boats that's awesome (laughs) it's such like an engine like engineers look at it now and just think that's and the fact that he did it in relatively a short amount of time with wooden boats is pretty incredible and they had to get so much like so much supplies and again hundreds of thousands of men yeah over it it was definitely a engineering achievement
1: those boats will come into the picture later, too, for Sparta. So. Right,
0: right, right. But this is just another funny tidbit to kind of show you who Xerxes was. A storm eventually did destroy these bridges, like the first attempt of the bridge, excuse me. And, and Xerxes ordered that the sea be whipped <laughs> as punishment. So. I, I
1: mean, I read something recently where, like, the king of egypt would jerk off into the river to show that he was like blessing the fertile season for the the egyptians that year so i mean like people did weird things to the people water are so time. weird i mean they we've mentioned it i think it was in the natural disaster episode you said that the water was probably revered as god like mm-hmm. for a while so i mean you're whipping god i guess
0: apparently trying to make
1: but xerxes also thought he was a god so
0: yeah that again that's the classic uh way to rule like no our, our God, our God said, I just talked to him.
1: You got to whip the water.
0: Yep. Uh, and just the last note about the bridges, it took seven full days for all these men to cross. And Herodotus put, uh, Herodotus put the, uh, the estimation of the Persian army to be five million.
1: That's a little crazy. A little much. Uh, still, but, I think it would take much longer to get five million people yeah. over that.
0: But the modern estimate, we're talking roughly 360,000. Which
1: is still massive.
0: And, yo, totally. And they were supported by 700 to 800 ships. So he meant business
1: to get over here. Just to put it in perspective, how many ships that is at the time period. Athens, uh, when they fight the Peloponnesian Wars, there's a battle at the end of the war where 170 of their ships get captured. And that's like most of their fighting naval force. So. There, we're talking, like, probably two to three times more ships in Persia than Athens, which is the naval power of Greece.
0: Right. Like, I mean, up until this time, Athens kind of ruled the Mediterranean. Like, they're, they had a huge navy. Mm-hmm. But then Persia was like, yeah, we see your little baby navy. A- LOL. <laughs> yeah, lol. Get good. Uh, after he crossed the Hellespont, Xerxes led his vast army and quickly conquered northern Greece and began moving south. And that is where we leave Xerxes for now, and we're gonna dive a little bit into who Leonidas was. Sweet. So Leonidas was the son of the Spartan king. And holy cow, this is just a name: Anaxandrides, <laughs> An and, Anax Anaxandrides
1: Sure. Yep, there's there's a name in there somewhere. There's,
0: there, it's it's a wild one. And he became king, inherited the throne, when his older half-brother, Cleomenes, died under violent and mysterious circumstances.
1: Ooh, conspiracy.
0: Before he could produce a male heir. So that is how Leonidas ascended to the throne. What
1: a failure of a Spartan. Couldn't produce a male heir. <laughs> Do you it's think- literally your one job other than... And that's where the cuckening happened. Yeah, honestly. (laughs) Literally, he, I mean, Leonidas came in. I did, just a side note, like I read something that I didn't mention this in the first episode because I forgot about it, but I did read something about like Spartan marriages. I I don't know if this is true or not, but I read. (laughs) Do we we call them marriages? (laughs) I read (laughs) something where like, once once they got married, there was a, a thing where they would take a woman into like a dark room and she would stay in there for a while. And they would shave her head so that a man would come in and think like, oh, this is like the men that I fucked in camp. And then they would have sex with their wives. And then it would be like a, a little while before they actually saw their wife in daylight. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, that's fucking weird.
0: <laughs> that is. Again, Spartans love sports. They love war. And they just love dudes. Yeah,
1: that is true. <laughs> dudes' butts. <laughs> yep. So the title of this episode is going <laughs> to it's, it's going to be sports dudes and war. <laughs> yeah.
0: Spartans part two. Electric boogaloo, but the boogaloo is just a butt. That was bad. As a king, it's said that Leonidas was a. Great military leader and was very savvy in court and was a great political one as well. Like we mentioned all male Spartan citizens uh, Leonidas had been trained mentally and physically since childhood to get ready to be a hoplite warrior and be part of that deadly phalanx. Hoplites were traditionally armed with a round shield, a spear, and an iron short sword and I'll just highlight the shield a little bit because it was very symbolic of the society just because they used those phalanx tactics, which if you, for whatever reason, didn't listen to part one of this series, I would suggest You go missed back and all listen. the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'll be...
1: We're just talking about a bunch of people dying in this one.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, these round shields that each Spartan warrior had, they were able to paint it, customize it. When a Spartan warrior died, they were carried on their shield and were buried with their shield.
1: Yeah, the famous saying, come back with your shield or on it. Yes, yes, exactly.
0: So this piece of equipment had such a huge part of their, well, A, just practicality with their military, because it obviously shields them, didn't sh- <laughs> but also just was a huge part of that idea that Spartan culture was... One unit, it was you know, communal. it was not. Yeah, it was not an individual based community, if that makes sense. Um, like you, yeah, I believe you used the term proto communism. Yeah, in the first first episode, so it was just very very fitting that they loved their shield
1: well and that's a big thing about the phalanx in general is just how mutually beneficial it is for everyone involved because not only is your shield covering you but the person next to you is covering the section of you that the your shield doesn't cover when you're holding it in your left arm so everyone's shield is covering the man to their left as well as themselves Mm -hmm. and that's where the the that's why the phalanx and the hoplite warrior system is so beneficial. It's because it works as a cohesive unit and it's just a giant moving amoeba of men like working together whereas like a lot of other cultures at this time fight individually. So
0: Right, right, right. But knowing that, <clears throat> excuse me. But knowing that the Persians were fastly approaching and invading Greece uh Leonidas actually was trying to drum up support for the war and wasn't having a ton of luck with it. And he was instructed to go visit the Oracle of Delphi, which if you're not familiar with Greek history, the Oracle of Delphi was supposed to have these supernatural like foreseeing powers, could predict the future stuff like that. In all reality, I, she was just a young girl that was high as hell. Yeah. Like she was giving like given a lot of herbs, if you will, and was just very, very, very high. Yep. But she said famously that either Spartan, or excuse me, that either Sparta would fall or a king would, basically meaning either the entire community, the entire city-state is going to perish, or one of the kings will die. And with that knowledge, Leonidas and a contingent of Greeks did gather and made their way to the pass at Thermopylae.
1: Oracle of Delphi is like a cool figure too. Mm -hmm. But there was one funny story I read about her where someone came and one of the Greek city states came and asked like who the best warriors were expecting her to say them. (laughs) And she says that like, I don't remember which city state she says is the best warriors. But then the second thing she says is Sparta has the best women (laughs) And then she basically says there's, like, ten other city-states that are better than you. <laughs> and So he left, like, dejected. Right. It's and the, like, well, why did I come here? And then she also said, can you
0: stop and give me some chicken nuggets? Yeah. Again, I, I got the munchies. Yeah. I am stoned as hell. <laughs> so now getting directly into the Battle of Thermopylae, with, again, Xerxes leading the Persian army, they quickly moved south after conquering northern Greece. Uh, primarily on the eastern coast, accompanied by that huge navy of eight hundred ships, moving parallel, uh, basically, well, maybe not one quote, basically hand in hand, moving their way down the Greek countryside. Their main goal was to reach Attica, which was the region controlled by Athens. Uh, the Persians needed to go through a little coastal pass known as Thermopylae, A.K.A the hot gates
1: nice
0: Leonidas and the rest of the Greek army which consisted of roughly 6000 to 7000 Greeks from an array of city-states including the classic 300 Spartans moved to Thermopylae to prevent the Persians from passing through the pass
1: I actually saw something too that said that there was actually 301 spartans that's amazing but it, it's just like way easier to say 300 than 301 so they just cleaned it up for the historical sake that'd be funny like they just don't mention that one guy well because <laughs> that they said that it was the 300 regular spartans and then leonidas, and leonidas. so it's yeah. 301 right but yeah they just don't say that because it's not as clean Do <laughs> you imagine just instead
0: of the movie 300 it's just 301 like that's just annoying yeah right what are we playing darts here yeah this is ridiculous (laughs) are we playing darts here so the pass of Thermopylae, which was located 150 kilometers north of athens you can definitely tell that one of my sources was from the eu because it says kilometers Uh, but this was an excellent choice for defense because as is depicted in the movie, it's a very steep, mountainous range, and the pass at Thermopylae is truly the only way through. In addition, the pass had already been fortified by local Phocians, who built a defensive wall running from the so-called middle gate down all the way to the sea. When the Greeks arrived, they saw that the wall was in a state of ruin, but they repaired it as best they could, to get it ready for defending against this huge Persian army. And it was here, in a 15-meter-wide gap, with a steep cliff on the left flank and the sea on the right flank, that the Greeks chose to make the stand against the invading Persian army. At this time, the Persian army, at the actual battle of Thermopylae, consisted of roughly 80,000 troops and the persian king led the invasion or excuse me Xerxes the persian king actually led this invasion and led the battle in person when they when both armies were camped out outside thermopylae getting ready for battle xerxes actually waited four entire days just because he expected that the greeks would flee in terror which is wild and just he did not know the Greeks. No, he did not do his research. Not at all. Would not be welcomed on the Gems of History podcast. <laughs> well, that would be a Actually, tight interview, but... <laughs> yeah,
1: we'd probably welcome him. Plus, he, he has a bunch of gold, so we could probably get something out of him.
0: I mean, if he just wants, like, spa- we've talked about selling out quite a bit on this. Cercise, <laughs> is... if you want to
1: sponsor us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you dead man of 3,000 years. Yeah, <laughs> Seeing that the Greeks would not flee... Uh, at the site of the more numerous Persian army, Xerxes once again sent envoys and messengers to offer the defenders a last chance to surrender without any bloodshed if the Greeks would just put down their spears and their shields. And this is where Leonidas famously says, Molen labe, which translates to, Come and get them. And there's also another classic, classic quote, and this is also portrayed in the 300 movie, where Xerxes or Xerxes' messengers say that their arrows of the Persian army would blot out the sky, make basically make the sky dark, and Leonidas again says, "Then we will fight in the shade." Yeah. So that kind of goes back to episode one when we talked a lot about. Just how witty the Spartans were too, and just using like one sentences, uh, like quick snapback, pretty badass. Yeah, they're they're pretty cool. Yeah, the two different armies, so the Persian army and the Greek army, were very representative of the two different approaches that were taken in classical warfare, uh, meaning just warfare in the Bronze Age. And at this time, Persian warfare favored these long range bows, uh, assaulting. Using archers uh, followed up with a vast cavalry charge, so they would just pepper the enemy, and in their experience in the Persian Empire's expansion, it was different civilizations that weren't organized, or were, were, were not well armored as well. So if they just had more bows and more arrows, they could, they could just kill a majority of the enemies. While the Greeks, like we mentioned, were in a phalanx formation and were very heavily armored, and arranged in a densely packed formation. And each man, like again, like we mentioned, had a huge bronze shield, and in close quarters fought with spears and swords. So we have completely different mindsets when it comes to the different army compositions. And to give a sense, the Persian infantry usually carried a lightweight, often crescent-shaped wicker, wicker shield and were armed with usually a long dagger or a battle axe. So the base infantry for the Persians, not great when going head to head against, against the, uh, the phalanx. We also have the infamous immortals of the Persian forces who were an elite battalion of 10,000 men who were better armored and were armed with spears and a little bit longer swords than your typical infantry regular that I talked about before. Lastly, the Persian cavalry were also armed, uh, just like the foot soldiers, with a bow allowing for hit-and-run tactics, two javelins for throwing and thrusting, and short swords. Cavalry, which essentially was eliminated in the Battle of Thermopylae, Typically operated and charged the flanks when it came to an actual battle in a field. And were used to typically just mop up opposing infantry that were retreating and use more as scare tactics. Because it is very intimidating when you have a bunch of horses and yeah. men trying to kill you coming at you.
1: It is cool though that the, I read something that the Spartans were in such good physical condition. That in cases of a cavalry fight, they would be able to chase down like the people. A horse. Yeah, (laughs) a horse or like the the archers that are way in the back line. They would be able to chase and catch them because of how well, like how fit they were. So it's kind of insane how, if that is true, it is insane how well kept the Spartans were physically. Could you imagine being an archer just thinking, I'm just
0: going to chill back here, going to shoot my little arrow, arrow, use my little bowie bow. And all of a sudden, it's just Leonidas running up <laughs> yeah. and just kicking you in the head. You
1: see him across the battlefield, and then like five minutes. You, you min- blink. And three he's... minutes later, he's right on you, Ugh. and you're also <laughs> running away.
0: Right. So, like I mentioned, the Persians usually had a lot more success with these different tactics, like a very light-armored, more hit-and-run tactics in battles, such as the Ionian Revolt as well as just their conquests in Egypt and other parts of the Middle East, but Thermopylae definitely led the advantage to the Spartans and the Greek force.
1: Yeah, one big cohesive unit plugging up that gap is a lot more beneficial than uh, a giant army just going wild. And if the Spartans knew anything,
0: they definitely knew how to plug a hole. Yeah. Was that, was that too much? Yep. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I started. I
1: said we left the butt stuff in the last episode. <laughs> Never!
0: (laughs) (laughs) So although the Persian tactic of firing vast numbers of arrows into the enemy must have been an incredible sight, the lightness of these arrows actually meant that they were pretty much completely ineffective against the bronze-shielded phalanxes of the Greeks.
1: I wish I could see that like giant turtle shell that they would form with those shields. I would Love to see just it, just to see the visual of that. To be a fly in the wall, mm-hmm. they, that'd be so cool.
0: That would be so. Uh, I would love to actually like see this battle. Mm-hmm. I was this talking, may be like top one of battles I would love to see. I, I was
1: talking to a coworker about the Spartans, and he he was just like, "Man, if I could just like be a non-factor and just view it from outside, but not be like." influential in the battle at all just to see it would be so cool to see the society in general and the battles they fought and like just to actually visually see how things went down would be so insane
0: I guarantee if time travel actually does become a thing theoretically in our in our I don't know in our universe I could definitely see a business instead of you know making movies just literally show battles like this. I would love that. That would be the coolest, coolest thing. I guess I say that until I realize, oh wow, that's like a real person that just died.
1: Yeah, it's a very. It's it's a, to it's, it's, we're gonna. Get, a lot of people are not gonna be ready for it. <laughs> no.
0: Sick in practice, but in, yeah, in practicality. At close quarters, the longer spears, heavier swords, and better armor, and better armor, and the better armen from attack of. Attack on Titan.
1: I'm in charge of the gas tanks. (laughs) Tink, 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 tink.
0: (laughs) And as well as the rigid discipline of the phalanx formation meant that the Greek hoplites had the complete advantage in this situation. As well as the terrain definitely just gave advantage upon advantage to the Greeks. On the first day of the actual battle, Xerxes sent his Median and his Kissian troops in. Which were those lightly armored, basically giving along, given a long dagger not professionally trained soldiers that he just kind of brought along he sent them in on the first day and they completely failed to clear the pass yeah so I wonder why he tried yeah Xerxes tried to just almost do a war of we have more men than you and you will send them all.
1: This is the Russian World War II tactic is just send, oh, yes, send right. people right, until we'll, they stop.
0: Yeah, into machine gun fire until they yeah, run out of bullets. Literally. Uh, after they failed to clear the pass, the elite immortal group entered the battle and in the brutal close quarter fightings, the Greeks stood firm. The Greeks would often during this battle or during this day one, would feign a disorganized retreat and then at the most opportune moment would turn and face the enemy in that phalanx formation, basically letting the enemy who's sprinting run into this wall of shields and then the people behind the actual shield wall would do a whole lot of stabby-sab.
1: Yeah. It was very it's a very good way to entice your already bloodthirsty enemy to just keep coming at you until they can't stop.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean it's a great it's a great tactic, especially for this. They would truly just be out in the more open quote unquote part of the of the pass. They would act like they were retreating, go to the very shut in part, form the wall, and then just pretty much wipe out everyone, either pushing them off the cliff into the sea, or, again, stabbing them in Mm -hmm. the heart with a spear. (laughs) Which would you rather, get stabbed or fall?
1: (laughs) A long spear is going to do a lot better in this situation than a a short sword.
0: Right, right. And this tactic really surprised the Persians because it was the first real professional army that they've encountered during their entire existence. It's very interesting because they were mostly fighting just men who got taken away from their farm fields like they were fighting farmers and not actual professionals. The second day of the battle followed the same pattern as the first, and the Greek forces still held the paths. However, a traitor was about to tip the balance in favor of the Persians. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He is so gross in the movie. I just, there's just,
1: no way that's what this guy was like.
0: No, he was probably, no, he was literally, so his name was Ethelades and he was a local shepherd. Yeah, he's just a the guy. Area. And he was like, if I tell Xerxes about this nice little backwards path. So much money. He got all the gold and he informed the Persians of this alternative route. Which is known as the Anopeia path, which allowed them to, or would allow them to circumvent and basically get to the flanks of the main Greek force and allow them to attack on two different sides. Leonidas, expecting you know that maybe someone would come through that path, actually did station a contingent of Phocian troops to guard this vital point. But the Fokians, thinking, thinking themselves the primary target of this new attack, withdrew to a different defensive positions when the Immortals started rushing them. So they kind of chickened out on that, on that moment. Now, with their position seemingly hopeless and before the retreat was cut off completely, since Leonidas saw that, he's getting attacked from two different angles the majority of the Greek forces were ordered to withdraw directly by Leonidas. The Spartan king then, on the third day of battle, rallied his small force, the survivors from the original Spartan 300, 700 thespians, and 400 thebans, and made a stand to defend the pass to the last man in hope of delaying the Persians' progress and to allow for the rest of the Greek force to retreat or to maybe get some support from other city-states during the battle a little bit later.
1: Yeah, that's was one of the interesting points for me from this battle is that we remember it as the Spartans being the ones that are the, the real heroes here, but there is literally 1,100 other people with them that also he stayed did. and died. So
0: Right, the, the Thespians and Thebians just get no credit for this at yeah. all. But in reality, it was 1,400 Greeks that made this famous last stand and not just 300 Spartans. Sorry for bursting your bubble. So early in the morning on the third day, the hoplites formed their phalanx and once more met the enemy. But this time, Xerxes attacked from both the front and the rear, and in the event, the immortals, excuse me, and sent the immortals in the rear to attack the Greek force. Leonidas moved his troop to the widest part of the pass to utilize all of his men at once, and in the ensuing clash, the Spartan king was killed. It's said that his soldiers fought unbelievably ferociously to recover the body of the fallen king. During this time in particular is when the immortals,
1: I don't know if we mentioned that the immortals are like the elites for the Persian army.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I believe I mentioned the okay. immortals were the elite, like only ten thousand of them. I wasn't just, allowed I, at. I, at, I at just at wasn't time. listening to you. Oh, fine. <laughs> Thanks, partner. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it was at this time that the Immortals charged, charged the battle from the Greek, from the Greek behind, um, and at this point, the Theban contingent of the remaining fourteen hundred actually surrendered, and this is kind of debated whether they surrendered or not, but according to my source, they did surrender. And the remaining hoplites, now trapped and without their king, were subjected to a barrage of Persian arrows until no man was left standing. After the battle, Xerxes ordered that Leonidas's head be put on a stake and displayed at the battlefield. So they Also, after cutting off his head, uh, stabbed his body like hundreds of times and like filled it with arrows, like kind of just desecrated the body. And as Herodotus actually claims in his accounts of the battle, uh, the Oracle at Delphi was finally proven right when she proclaimed that either Sparta or one of her kings would fall.
1: I did see somewhere that two of the Spartans actually did manage to make it out of the battle and got back but they were just exiled after because they were seen as pretty much traitors to the the loyalty of the Spartan cause and everything. So, Mm. yeah, even though they made it back, they really weren't, like, welcomed. Yeah,
0: it's like, sure, you're living, but you're also exiled from your entire community.
1: Like, one of them died shortly after, and then the other one was just gone.
0: Right, all right. So the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, and particularly the Spartans' role in it, soon acquired mythical status amongst the Greeks. Free men, in respect of their own laws, had sacrificed themselves in order to defend their way of life against foreign aggression. As Simonides' epitat at the site of the fallen stated, Go tell the Spartans, you who read, We took their orders, and here lie dead. This was considered a very glorious defeat, But the fact remains that there was now a clear path for Xerxes to push into mainland Greece. The Greeks, though, were far from defeated as a nation as a whole. And despite many states now turning over to the Persians, uh, meaning different city states literally were like, nope, Xerxes is great, you're a guy now. And with Athens itself actually being sacked and burnt to the ground, a Greek army, which was led by Leonidas' brother, Cleombrotus, which that's just perfect name, yep. Cleombrotus, began to build a defensive wall near Corinth. Winter actually halted the land campaign of Xerxes, and at Salamis, or Salamis, I don't know how you want to pronounce that. i go with Salamis. Sal- I think it is Salamis. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> the Greek fleet Actually, maneuvered or outmaneuvered the Persians and drew them into shallow waters and won a resounding victory, which is depicted in whatever the second 300 movie is. I
1: I didn't even know there was a second 300 movie until my coworker told me there was. Oh, really? That's how much of a non factor that movie is.
0: Right, honestly, yeah. Uh, Xerxes then returned home to his palace at Susa and left. The general Mardonius in charge of the invasion. So, you know, what I see Xerxes, like, I'm out of here. After a series of political negotiations, it became clear that the Persians would not gain victory through diplomacy. Wild.
1: Crazy. <laughs> They've tried it three times yep. now.
0: <laughs> After diplomacy was no longer an option, the Greek army met the Persian army at the Battle of Plataea in August 479 BC. It was at the Battle of Plataea that the Greeks actually fielded the largest hoplite army ever seen and won the battle and finally ended the Persian ambitions in Greece. And thus concludes the battle and the story of Thermopylae. And it is kind of interesting, just a quick bit of quick footnote. Uh, the strategic position of Thermopylae actually came into play like several times. So we're actually talking like four different times. So twice. Uh, in like the same age as the Battle of Thermopylae with one being when the Greeks fended off the Gauls were invading and then once when the Roman army actually defeated Antiochus the third and even as recent as 1941 when New Zealand held off German forces in World War II, Which is awesome. <laughs> That's so great. The Kiwis—they yeah. fought, <laughs> fought off the Germans. <laughs> they weren't having none of it. No, no, they weren't. They weren't. They were not messing around with uh, Hitler's nonsense. But thus concludes the story of Thermopylae and some of the surrounding, or of course, like the key players such as Leonidas and Xerxes, and very interesting,
1: interesting battle. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to. Have like a little discussion here about this because I read a very interesting article on Ask Historians from that one dude that I mentioned who is pretty much the Spartan, resident Spartan expert on Ask Historians. He comments on all the posts and has like super detailed write-ups on stuff. And he made a, an interesting point where uh, he... Contends that perhaps the reason the Spartans are known as a military powerhouse comes from this battle. This is the sole reason why we mm-hmm. think that. Because since the Spartans at Thermopylae had become legendary almost immediately, their status became widely known almost immediately. Right. And since our main source on the battle is Herodotus, who he was born a few years before the battle, meaning that he was a child at best when this happened. Right. So what, by the time he was already ready to write he was going to be older so there's probably room in that even if it was just like 10 years to exaggerate the story and do like a giant myth or a legend mm. so who knows how much of it was actual truth and how much of it was that propping up of the spartan people so it's not I, I, this has taken a bit of a leap it's not saying like the story isn't as it is written. I'm sure a lot of it is how it is written. That's probably how things went down. Mm. But it also leaves the door open for the possibility that there is sens- sensationalism involved in the writing of it, which is, as we found, a common thread in the whole story of the Spartans as a whole. And this is the real first mention of the military might of Sparta coming. It was around the time of this battle. So it's logical to say the Spartans use this new reputation as fearsome warriors to their advantage, and he argued that the Spartans' military record is pretty could be largely unrelated to their reputation. Mm. Basically, saying they could have been winning battles earlier on, but they're like smaller battles. Obviously, they're in fighting battles, right? But they didn't have the reputation as warriors until the Battle of Thermopylae shot them to fame. So. It's not saying that they weren't good warriors. It's just saying that because of this battle, they had to pretty much reform and live up to that new reputation now. Mm-hmm. So They got that legend status. Yeah, so. <laughs> Sparta felt the need to live to that new standard. So they reinvented, and they adopted their new uniforms of bronze and red to appear as a giant singular mass, as Xenophon, one of the historians that wrote... at near the time of the Spartans, was writing about. And this is where they got the shields with the lambda symbol on it, the mm-hmm. upside-down V. That's where they all got that on their shields to look as a cohesive unit. Their obedience that they are taught as kids now made them a reliable uh, army, and they set up scouting parties to move ahead of the army proper, so they're getting new t- tactics now. Uh, but most importantly, they s- did start setting up formation drills. So now they had different officers of each platoon and were trained to march to a tune. So they're very much more organized in the way that they do their phalanx formations than all the other Greek Mm city-states. So it may not seem like a lot, but it put them way ahead of everyone else. And this meant that they could wheel around their hoplite formations to prevent flanking. They could communicate more effectively instead of trying to shout to the one commander of a battle. (laughs) Yeah. And most importantly, their reputation of Thermopylae and this new appearance made them look so much more intimidating. Mm -hmm. So most of the enemies would retreat if their charging and flanking attempts failed. So in this way, it could be said that the military power of Sparta came after their reputation for it. And they went on to win a bunch of battles after this happened, making them even more mythical in their proportion. And whether they won by tactics, by numbers, by intimidation, it didn't matter, because what mattered is that they were winning and spreading that reputation. Yep. Dubs talk. So, in that way, like, they weren't always this great military force. It's pretty much they had to become something of a military force to live up to an expectation set for them.
0: Right. They probably saw Herodotus' Herodotus's account and were like, wait, that's us? We got to get more organized Exactly.
1: (laughs) So it's not that they weren't good warriors because they're still badass, but it's just that they had to do it out of necessity. It's not that they were always like this, we have to be the best Mm -hmm. mentality. They were good enough until they needed to be the best.
0: Yep, and then they kicked into high gear.
1: Yes. So it's an interesting way to look at it, and there's still people that push back on that just because of how ingrained the modern Spartan ideal is, Mm -hmm. and there's obviously people that have... Put, propped that up, and made it into something of a fictional hero for them. So if that's how it is for you, don't let us like, change your opinion. It's, but it's still not saying they're not badass. They yeah. are. so
0: Still very cool.
1: As we, as we mentioned in the first episode, there's myth-busting, but it's not going to be like come crashing down on your dreams. Yeah, we don't need to kill any, uh, anyone's perception here. Just giving you the facts. Yeah. So after Thermopylae and the Persian problem, Greeks continued their famous infighting with Athens and Sparta emerging at the top of the pack. Athens' ever-growing power was starting to startle the Spartans since the Athenian fleet was growing even more rapidly and they were building new fortifications along their harbors. Sparta was eventually pushed into action. When Corinth began to fight with Athens and the Spartans knew that they needed to support Corinth in order to keep them as an ally. And this is pretty much known as the first stage of the Peloponnesian War, which is the other biggest war in Spartan history, pretty much. But the first stage is not nearly as important as the second stage. It's kind of split into two separate time periods of war, but it's all known as the Peloponnesian War. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this interim, small conflicts continued on and off between Sparta and Athens, mainly through companion states like Corinth. Sparta took turns protecting the various city-states that Athens was attempting to invade for resources. And eventually, Athens started putting trade embargoes on various cities. And this is where Pericles, the Athens leader, comes into the picture, and he continued to instigate the people of Athens to look negatively at the Spartans, kind of Putting a reputation as, like, the Spartans are these heathen people or whatever. Mm, Savages. Yeah, just to make them look bad. And then after an Athenian ally was attacked, like, they attacked uh, Attica, which is where the Athenian state was. A Spartan king named Archidamos led a charge into there with the Peloponnesian army. And then war was on. Again, we're back. Once again, and this is where the second half of the Peloponnesian War comes in, and the second half is considered one of the most deadly conflicts in Greek history because they kind of reinvent how they do war during this time period. So many of the Greek states allied with Athens, paying them in money as well as ships in order for Athens to protect them from not only Spartans, but the Persians were still kind of a looming threat just on everyone's minds after what happened years before even though they weren't that big of a deal anymore. Eventually, though, it resembled something closer to an Athenian empire rather than a league of allies because Mm -hmm. everyone was just paying them and then they made a capital city and everything. So, yeah, it was more of Athens trying to take over. But in Sparta, they developed the Peloponnesian League with their allies and Sparta didn't demand any money from them, but rather just asked for their allies to provide troops that would be under Spartan command. So both sides fight back and forth constantly. City-states are going, both sides are employing scorched earth tactics, literally burning cities to the ground. And when they met in battle, it was one of the first times new tactics were being introduced, such as the use of slaves, mercenaries, and foreigners in battle, whereas it used to just be like that leisure class fighting for their city. Mm Mm-hmm. It was even said, I saw on one source, that they were using a primitive form of a flamethrower against f- the wooden fortifications. No way. Which that's... I don't know what that would look like. But yeah. uh, this is where also both sides began killing citizens in mass when they would take over cities. And that's why it's considered one of the deadliest conflicts in Greek history. Right. Because they're literally just killing entire citizen populations. So, oh, yeah.
0: And literally burning cities to the ground. So this was a brutal civil war you even consider it a civil war? Just a brutal conflict. Yeah,
1: it's just Greeks fighting Greeks. Mm-hmm. Eventually, a plague hit Athens, killing a good number of the people there, including the leader Pericles. But it's surprisingly, the battle ultimately was decided at the sea. And as we've mentioned multiple times, Athens, Athens was the naval power in Greece at the time. So they seem like the likely victor in the scenario. But then Sparta reached out to an unlikely supporter, the Persians. Wow, that came full circle. Yeah, so a man named Lysander took over the command of the Spartan navy, convinced the Persian prince Cyrus to provide him with money, and then Lysander built up the navy, trained the sailors, and prepared to take on the Athenian fleet. So while this kind of seems odd, obviously Persia was fighting against the Greeks 75 years earlier than this, But it was kind of a lateral move for the Persians because now, instead of physically having to go to Greece to fight, they were allowing the Greeks to fight themselves, and this kept the Persian-owned coastal areas in like Turkey pretty much safe from any of the Greeks coming to try and take back some of the land. So with this backing from the Persians, the Spartans organized a fleet, lost it, rebuilt another fleet, lost that one. And then finally built the fleet that they would use to depose Athens. It's like, where did I put my freaking fleet third <laughs> if it's just here? Third time's the charm. Yeah. <laughs> so at a, at a battle in... Ah, this one's going to be bad. Agos Potami. Oh, there you go. Lysander caught the Athenian naval fleet off guard, cut off their grain supplies captured 170 Athenian ships, and killed 3,000 captives. Jeez. And after killed this...
0: 3,000 captives.
1: Yeah. After this defeat, the uh, Spartans were now number one in Greece.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk
1: about a come-up. Yeah. <laughs> it
0: took them three times to...
1: And it wouldn't take them long to fuck it all up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because after defeating Athens, the Spartans didn't take long to turn their backs on the Persians who were supporting them and made a campaign into Turkey, (laughs) which forced them to fight on multiple fronts, which is a strategy that has echoed throughout history to be a mostly unsuccessful move. Yeah, literally has never worked. Never. So after that split of the fronts, another old ally began to turn on Sparta and push them to their back foot. And the Thebans led the charge. The Spartans began losing battles, and more importantly, they began losing people. Because when the Thebans came through and defeated them, they liberated all of the Messenians and deprived Sparta of much of its slave labor. Like, oh, we have to go do our, we have to go harvest our own food uh, now. Pretty much the basis of their society is gone now. Yes. Yeah. And this is where Sparta kind of loses everything. They never return to being a first-rate power. They're always considered second-rate at mm-hmm. this point. And the following centuries, Sparta was under the control of Macedonia, led by Alexander the Great, even though they did push them back a couple times. And then various Greek cities eventually took over, and then Rome came in, as yep. they always do. And took over everything. <laughs> yep. During this time, Sparta was forced to build a city wall in Sparta for literally the first time in their history. That's incredible. Because they had that legendary reputation, so a lot of people just didn't come attack them. And plus, they just had that mountain range on the coast that they kind of had a natural border, so it it didn't really need to have a city wall. But yeah, they built their first one. But the military might of Sparta was pretty much gone. They tried a couple times to revive it, didn't work. And while under Roman control, the biggest standout to the visitors was the marketplace, which was modeled using Persian spoils of war. Hmm. So the military might's gone, but they at least they have something. They have so. a neat little economy, I guess. The Sparta continued throughout all of the various ages. It was never truly lost. And there's still a modern day city, which stands near the ancient ruins has a population, as far as I could find, around sixteen thousand people.
0: Wow, that's that's kind of insane.
1: Yeah. So the Spartan Spartan ruins really aren't that glorious. I mean, compared to Athens and Olympias, which or Olympia, mm. which have the Parthenon right. and a bunch of other cool stuff. Right, right. But the legend of the Spartans is really what is living on through all of history Mm -hmm. in the minds of many, whether through the movies or video games. And as I mentioned, historians are continuing to reevaluate the sources we have, kind of rethink the modern idea of what the Spartans were to give us the best best picture of what this once great power was truly like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's that's the Spartans. The
0: Spartans, they were very incredible culture and brave warriors, but very interesting that they... They got to the top and they were like, We overreached.
1: Yeah, they lost it almost immediately.
0: Almost immediately. Yeah. So they were
1: always near the top. It was them in Athens pretty much all of, throughout this period of time. But mm-hmm. once they actually got that number one spot, they just like, let's go fight the Persians again. Yeah, <laughs> who
0: just gave us all this money. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so And it is interesting because after the they defeated the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War, the the Persians immediately realized the Spartans weren't going to listen to them anymore. No. So then they started giving Athens ships. Ah. So then Athens defeated Sparta, and then Athens started acting up. So then they gave Sparta ships again. (laughs) So it, it, it was the Spartans defeated the Athenians with persian ships then the athenians beat the spartans with persian ships yeah and then sparta <laughs> beats athens again and then persia's like we're done yeah we're done investing <laughs> in you guys yeah so it, it is fascinating time period because everyone's kind of just doing their own thing and persia's like we have money yeah we <laughs>
0: Yeah, Persia wasn't really invading anyone. They were no. just like, we'll give you some, some cash. Yeah,
1: and it helped them because they could still maintain their empire size without having to worry about people invading until Sparta was like, nah, we're going to invade. Until they gave them. it a shot. <laughs> but, yep, that is the story of the Spartans. There's obviously plenty more that we could go into, but that's all we're going to cover for you guys. I think we gave you guys a good overarching picture of the Spartan society culture. It was, it was a cool place, They're man. they key moments. It was a yeah. cool place. It was. Unless you were a helot. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Don't want to be a helot. Yeah. But
0: if you want to continue the conversation and reach out to us about this episode or any of our episodes, you can find us on the different social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, then myself at Wodevskys. You can then find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcasts. You can You can find us on Facebook, uh, the discussion group, the Gems of History discussion group known as the Agora, famously named after the Greek meeting places. Very fitting. Mm -hmm. You can also find us on YouTube and then on TikTok at Gems of History
1: Pod. But that's all we got for you guys on the Spartans. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Getting a little bit of a deeper dive into something that you probably have heard of, but didn't really know what actually was going on with them. So the Greeks were a cool culture. Also had some very eccentric ideas. They
0: were very sex positive.
1: That is true. That they were. But we will be back with you guys next week with some fun and entertaining content.
0: Ooh, as always.
1: Yes. We really need to come up with like a way to just end these shows. Cause I always, yeah, we gotta, yeah. I always just like ramble until I'm just like, yeah, Bye. we're done. <laughs> yeah. Later. <laughs> we got to come skaters. up with like some sort of catchphrase to say at the end of the show.
0: Do you want me to just beatbox style out here? Like, stay
1: s- shiny, s- Gemstones. Ooh,
0: stay polished.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. There you go. Stay polished.